The other thing that gives me hope is spending time with this next generation, especially spending time with folks who are dedicating themselves to service, who are constantly coming together with people that don't look like them, are focusing on the issue at hand and making progress. And coalitions are being built to fight racial inequities, to fight gun violence, to fight climate change. And I look at them, the most diverse generation that this country has ever seen, they will not stand and allow the problems that our generation created to stand within their lifetime and their generation. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. Welcome back, Seymour family. As some of you know, and all of you will come to learn, one of the things that I do consistently is I study the achievements, lessons, struggles, and insights of my ancestors. It's one of the things I draw on as a source for wisdom and inspiration. And I call ancestors folks who I share blood lineage with and also folks who I share ideology and values with. So one of the ancestors I claim and learn from is the great James Baldwin, trailblazing civil rights leader, brilliant poet, author, playwright, and fighter for social justice who also managed to hold and sustain generative expansive love while fighting for change. So James Baldwin once famously wrote, the moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. And that quote, you know, we hear it a lot, especially these days, because there's so much happening in our world that threatens to engulf us where our light is being dimmed. And my guest today is someone who embodies an alternative path. You know, it was no surprise to me when I saw a poster of James Baldwin in the backdrop of the room of today's guest, Michael Smith. To me, Michael truly embodies the power of coming together. He's the CEO of AmeriCorps, the federal agency for Americans to volunteer and to make a difference in their communities. Michael has spent all of his adult life bringing people together, probably his childhood years as well. In his career, previously he did this as the director of youth opportunity programs at the Obama Foundation and as executive director of My Brother's Keeper, Michael has always been about the business of expanding opportunities for young people, their families, and their communities. Michael really believes that coalitions are essential to fight against injustice and to build systems and resources, frankly, that enable this nation to be all that it is poised to be and promised to be. In today's episode, he shares how connecting across economic class, generation, identity, how connecting across all of these perceived differences can really help move all of us forward. He also guides us in understanding what true service is really about. So, with no further ado, let's get into it. 
So you may or may not know this about me, Michael, but I am a real uh, neuroscience geek. Like I think in another, yeah, in another life, I might have wanted to be a neuroscientist, really. I mean, I just am so fascinated by our brains. And so I've studied with great organizations like Healthy Mind Innovation Labs, Mm -hmm. like what it takes to enable us as humans to be open, calm, you know, able and available to connect all that. And so one of the things that's really powerful is for us to take a moment to reflect on when we were last inspired. Mm. What that does to the neural pathways in our brains is remarkable. So I'm going to just take a beat and hold space for you, Michael, to share. Talk to us a little bit about the last time you were inspired. Describe it to us. Oh, my goodness. Leading AmeriCorps, I'm inspired all the time. But asking that question, I was actually just back home uh, from my hometown in Springfield, Massachusetts last week. I have a baby brother that just graduated from high school. And so we were oh. we were there celebrating that graduation. And I also, when I was there, I went to the Boys and Girls Club that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And we brought together all of the AmeriCorps seniors that are working across the city of Springfield, Massachusetts. And we probably had about 20 AmeriCorps seniors, foster grandparents, senior companions, retired senior volunteers that are working across the city. Mm-hmm. And any chance I get to be with the seniors is so inspiring because the, the yeah. young AmeriCorps members, they know why they want to do it. But I frankly, mm-hmm. at the at the earlier times, it's much more professional. I'm doing this for my career. Mm-hmm. Um, for the seniors, I cannot tell mm-hmm. you how many times I heard from people in that room that this saved my life, this changed my life. Wow. And it actually makes me reflect on a story that I heard from a grandma named Elnora, a foster grandparent named Elnora, mm-hmm. who told me, that her only child, her only son, was killed when he was 19 years old. And as she was getting older, she found herself grieving him all over again because Mm -hmm. she realized she would never have grandchildren. And so she found AmeriCorps foster grandparents. And all of a sudden, she has hundreds of grandchildren. She said, I, she said, I can't walk into a store without having hear someone calling me grandma. And so this <laughs> service that I am doing has, has saved and changed my life. And so, you know, tears just flowing down my, my face. And so I just, just so full and so overjoyed yes. having the opportunity to, to hear those sorts of stories from our seniors. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. We're going to talk a little bit, Michael, about the power of these intergenerational connections and relationships that AmeriCorps is helping to enable that don't always happen naturally outside of the context of family. Right. And yet, you know, as a society, you know, we need these relationships across our community. So we're going to talk more about that. That's a brilliant and beautiful story. I, I was thinking about something that inspired me recently. And, you know, it's going to sound like it's a flex. It's not meant to be. But it's actually also about the power of elders, right? So, Mm. you know, for listeners, we're having this conversation on the same day that New Profit made the announcement that I'm stepping into the sole CEO role. And, you know, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited about what's ahead for all of us. And, you know, I just am moving, 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 you know, having the meetings, having the conversations. I haven't really taken it in. My mother called me and, um, you know, I have a rule that when my mother calls I always pick up, even mm-hmm. if it's to say, mm-hmm. you know, mom, I'm going to have to step away for a minute, but you, you're okay. You know, like yep. I have a rule, right? Because my mother taught me that the thing that gave her peace when my grandfather passed, when her father passed, is that she always, always picked up and always said, I love you before mm. she ended any conversation in person or on the phone. So I have that practice, but I was thinking it was going to be a quick, hey, mom, love you. You okay? All right. Got to go. And she was like, I want you 
to take a moment and experience what it's like for your mother to read this announcement about you. Mm. And she took some time to just read in her voice mm. the words about this moment. And I'm going to tell you, Michael, I had not actually taken it in fully, I think, until I heard my mother's voice right. read the words. Right. Right. Yes. There was something yes. about being witnessed and held by another person an elder, a precious and beloved elder, my yes. mother, that just expanded my ability to really notice what's happening and yes. to be present, right? So it was it was an inspiration and a reminder that those moments that enable us to really be present, they matter so much. You know, they matter so much. They really do. It's, you know, it reminds me of, you know, this, this idea that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. Right. You know, my, my grandmother grew up on a tiny little farm in Regalwood, North Carolina, a little paper yes. mill town that still has dirt roads. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking her once when I was younger, I said, you know, Nana, did, did you have a TV when you were growing up? And she yeah. looked at me and she said, boy, did we have a TV? We barely had a house. <laughs> and so sometimes I find myself in some of these moments doing yeah. the work that we do and just remember I sit down at a Thanksgiving table with someone that still had to sit in the back of the bus. Right. And it is important to ground yourself in those conversations. That's right. That's right. Speaking of grounding, I notice that you behind you have this beautiful photograph portrait image of the great James Baldwin. Yes. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about like, what does James Baldwin mean to you? Talk to me about why that image is there in your space <sighs> where you do so much of your work. For so many different reasons, obviously his words and his work, like Giovanni's Room and Fire Next Time, have meant so much to me in my own mm -hmm. personal growth and development. But it is also a reminder as a gay black man, mm -hmm. and I and I oftentimes I wrestle with those two identities. Yes, yes. What does it mean to walk into a room as a black man and as a gay man? And mm -hmm. and I look at James Baldwin as someone that I, I I've learned so much um, watching that. Also, just yeah. looking at someone. Um, who I think really struggled with this idea of how you bring your full self. And maybe he struggled with it less than I do. And mm -hmm. so I see him as a reminder to remind yes. me who I am when I am walking into to certain rooms to bring my full self, because only when I do that uh -huh. can I truly serve whatever work that I am doing to the best of my ability. Yeah, I love that. And everything you said resonates so much. So I want to hear a little bit about your story in terms of what in your experience led you to be the leader of AmeriCorps. And I don't mean like what steps did you take in your career path, but what is it about what you've lived through that made this a role that you were called to do? Well, Tulane, at my core, I am a little boy that was born to 16-year-old parents mm -hmm. from Springfield, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I am from a town that in the 1980s a neighborhood that went from a working class community to a community that struggled with the impact of economic downturns, yeah. the crack epidemic, yep. where there was more violence than they there should have been, mm -hmm. where opportunity was beginning to get limited yeah. in ways that it hadn't even been the generation before mine. Right. And so when I think about who I am today, it is it is rooted in all of that. Yeah. So I, I am that child. I am also that grandchild of Josie Ross, who I was just talking about, mm -hmm. who left Regalwood, North Carolina with her big sister when she was 15 years old wow. as a part of the great migration story to mm -hmm. go up north. They stopped in D.C., they stopped in Baltimore, they stopped in Brooklyn, New York, where my mama was born, uh, and then eventually made their, their way to Western Massachusetts, mm -hmm. uh, going through incredible odds. Uh, mm. She lost her husband. My grandmother had six kids by the time she was 26 years old, wow. then lost her husband and had to manage all of that by herself. 
Oof. And I am the I am the product of that. Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. the oldest of all boys. My mother has one other child that is 26 years younger than me. And my father had three more children. Uh-huh. One of those boys, Tori, who was the closest in age to me, I lost to gun violence in 2009. Mm-hmm. And so who I am is the collection of all of those experiences. Yeah. And the reason that I do the work that I do is because I have seen people that have overcome, that have struggled, people who did not have a whole lot of resources but gave their last dime so I could go on that field trip, so I could go to school, so I could have things that they couldn't have. Mm. And that was in my family. It was in the Boys and Girls Club that I was sent to Mm -hmm. where people who weren't in my family gave their all to make sure that kids like I could have their dreams fulfilled. And Mm. so my path to this work is trying to honor all of that. Honoring all of them and using as much of my life as I can mm. to build up communities like the one that I that I grew up in, mm-hmm. where people might see poverty, people might see some rundown buildings, people might see violence. Yeah. But I see a rich, beautiful community where I grew up with resources and love that friends of mine who might have all the money in the world didn't grow up with. And so that's why I am and why I do the work that I do today. But I also just, I, I watched my mother. I watched her struggle. And she will not let me forget. She still tells me to this day, do you know I took six buses a day to get you to school and me to school and me to work in order for you to be where you are now? And so I just have such a rich deal of respect yeah, for those yeah. people in my community that made my life possible. Yeah, you said six buses. She said six buses a day. And and I, I've been back to my community. I remember the daycare I went to in order for her to make that work. Wow. And my mother, what's really what's really fun about her, you know, I was born her senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. She sent me away to one of my aunts uh-huh. so that she could finish high school. And I went and lived with my aunt in Brooklyn, New York. Uh-huh. And then my mother enrolled herself into college, Western New England College, now Western New England University. And she struggled and she tried. She dropped out. She went back. She dropped out, went back. I was 10 years old when I saw my mother walk across the stage. Uh, And so uh, I uh. got to see what that was like. And it just it it, it gave me so much strength and and put into perspective the fights that I have to fight Mm. compared to what those that came before me had to fight. Michael kicked off his career in the mid-90s as an intern and staff assistant for Congressman Richard E. Neal, a representative from Massachusetts. And I remember at that time, you know, it was Newt Gingrich and the contract for America. And I remember the conversations I was having with him and he was saying, oh my goodness, the Hill is so hard now. It's not what it (laughs) used to be like. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Right. In the the 90s. And that's when we were, were beginning to see some of the splitting. Yeah. But at that time... People would say things on the house floor and still go have drinks after. Yes, yes. And like knew each other's family. Yes. Now I spend a lot of time on the Hill. Yeah. It's it's not even like that anymore. Wow. People aren't talking to each other. People aren't saying the thing on TV and then going and chatting with each other's family. It is divided mm. in ways that are deeply concerning mm-hmm. for the future of our country. Yeah. If, if we cannot figure out how to work together, if we can't figure out how to have common ground mm-hmm. where, you know, we're in a, a position in Washington right now where there's a member of Congress that's holding up all of the the appointees in the military mm. and military leadership positions. If we can't figure out 
certain things that used to be sacred, right. where we could come together, mm-hmm. it is a real challenge. Mm. And when I think about interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. you know, I I worked for Steve and Jean Case, Steve Case, who who started AOL. Yeah. And I remember Steve would say when when they created AOL, it was for them about community. Mm-hmm. It was going to be the internet was going to bring people together. It was going to build community. And and you saw some early signs of that, like sure. the LGBT community was coming mm-hmm. together. There were safe places for for women and mm-hmm. and people of color groups. Yeah. But now you fast forward, you know, 30 years later and you find this tool that was supposed to find commonality and to bring us closer together yeah. is allowing us to say things to each other that we would never say in person. That's, that's bringing right. us further and further apart and allowing us to hyper-consume only the information that we already agree with and identify with. That's right. And so we are at a point where this is all still a relatively new industry, and we are going to have to force ourselves to have some conversations. How do we regulate it? How do we interact with each other? What is sacred? What is not sacred? And we have time to do that. I don't think we are too far gone, but we are going to have to force ourselves to have those conversations. So... That assessment resonates deeply, but you said we're not too far gone. And I'm encouraged to hear you say that because there are some who worry that, you know, we sort of missed the moment where we might shift this trend. So talk to me a little bit, Michael, about what gives you belief that we're not too far gone. Like what are the things that are giving you evidence, indication and encouragement around us being able to shift this polarization you just described? You know, I, I, I think about a couple of things. One, I was at an event with John Meacham recently who was talking about historical perspective. For our listeners, John Meacham is a historian and presidential biographer. And was reminding us, I know this feels like we are heading for doom and gloom and disaster, but let me take you back to the Civil War and what was happening at that time. Let me take you back to the time when the Ku Klux Klan was beginning to, to step up in town. Let me take you back to the conversations around World War II. Mm. And when you begin to look at history, you see points where we feel like we are heading towards certain doom. Mm -hmm. And there are moments where we step in and we sideswipe and our better angels, I think, come in along with some good policy change and other, maybe maybe some some miracles that enter. So I I, I try to step into history and learn from that. But the other thing that gives me hope is spending time with this next generation. Yeah. Yeah, especially spending time with folks who are dedicating themselves to service, Mm. who are constantly coming together with people that don't look like them, are focusing on the issue at hand and making progress. And coalitions are being built to fight racial inequities, to fight gun violence, to fight climate change. And I look at them uh, the most diverse generation that this country has ever seen. seen. And, And that also gives me some hope that they will not stand and allow the problems that our generation created to stand within their lifetime and their generation. I love that. I think it's really, it's encouraging and it rings true. You know, it's um, hope without that being naivete, you know, and uh, there's a quote that I love that speaking of the, you know, the, the interwebs, (laughs) you know, it comes from a person who I do not know on Twitter Crow's Fault is the person's name, but I'm going to read this to you because it is how I relate to hope. And I wonder if it resonates with you. People speak of hope as if it is this delicate, ephemeral thing made of whispers and spider's webs. It's not. Hope has dirt on her face, 
blood on her knuckles, mm. the grit of the cobblestones in her hair, and just spat out a tooth as she rises for another go. Mm. That's the kind of hope I'm talking Ooh. about. <laughs> that is that is the hope. I need to put that on a poster and hang it in I'm my office. To that, is, <laughs> that is so true. Right? Uh, it actually reminds me, I was at, uh, we, AmeriCorps has this program called the National Civilian Community Corps. The National Civilian Community Corporation engages 18 to 24-year-olds in service and disaster recovery projects in communities. They might be mucking and gutting houses after hurricanes, yes. helping Habitat um, finish house builds. And I heard one of our directors give a speech talking about the boots that those AmeriCorps members wore. Mm. And they said, some of them will want you to keep them shined and polished and in perfect condition. But I want those boots that have blood and sweat and paint and grass stains and mud yes. because that shows the change that you made in communities across the country. Yes, yes. There's something about like hope has gotten this bad rap. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> hope is some of the fiercest, strongest, you know, most gangster thing. It's gangster to hope, you know, yeah, in times yeah. such as these. You know what I mean? So I, I love that. I love that. Currently, AmeriCorps has 200,000 members and senior volunteers serving about 40,000 locations across the country in different sectors. Their footprint is primarily in education, but many of their volunteers also work to fight climate change. Others work with senior citizens, helping combat rising rates of loneliness and isolation. You know, there is something about service where you get to be with a group, you get to do something, you get a sense of a, of a accomplishment. Yes. So that is there. But there's also something about stepping outside of your own stuff. Yes. Right. Yes. And beginning to see, you know, I thought I had it bad, but I've actually got something that I can offer mm-hmm. to a family that may be going through a little bit more than I am right, right now. That's and right. so that's I think that's what makes service so important. Mm. You know, when service is done right, (laughs) as we aim to do with AmeriCorps, you are not doing something to a community. You are doing something with the community. And even better, it is something that is happening from a community. Mm. So in the 30 years of history of AmeriCorps, and actually our history goes back even further because VISTA predated the agency, which is AmeriCorps VISTA now. If you go to any community, especially rural communities, tribal communities, AmeriCorps members their parents may have served in AmeriCorps. Like these are these are programs and community organizations that are using this federal resources to own the challenges and opportunity in their in their own community. Mm-hmm. And you are doing something wrong when you think you have something to offer, something to give, something to do for. It really has to be built from the grassroots up. But I also think that service can be that spark on a path from charity to justice. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I meet young people all the time who said, my mother brought me once a month to the food bank to hand out boxes. Mm-hmm. I am now in school working to figure out the systemic solutions to solve hunger and homelessness. Mm. I learned by serving. I, I, I began to understand the problem and then I committed myself to justice, to changing those issues. And what's so amazing is to see how that happens with the AmeriCorps members who serve. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a myth, for instance, that AmeriCorps is a program for wealthy white kids who want to take a gap year. That That is not who we are. Mm. AmeriCorps is more diverse than the nation. I want to take a beat to underscore what we just heard. AmeriCorps is more diverse than the nation. 
and that's hard to come by these days. 23% of AmeriCorps members are African-American. In California, 45% of the members are Latinx. And 40% of all AmeriCorps members come from low-income households. If you would have asked me our diversity numbers if I was here 15 years ago, they wouldn't be the same I see. as what they are now. Okay. And some of our larger programs that most people know, like Teach for America, they've been through their own journey. Absolutely. So some people might know Teach for America from many years ago when it wasn't almost 60% people of color like it is now. It is now. Um, and that has been a very intentional and deliberate journey to make sure that that effort is proximate. For Michael... Part of making AmeriCorps diverse is making sure that whoever joins the organization is paid fairly. I inherited an institution that did not pay AmeriCorps members enough. AmeriCorps members are not volunteers. Many of them are working 1,700 hours a year or more in a, a 10-month period. And we were paying them less than minimum wage in a lot of places wow. because there was this idea, it's service, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I came, I came in and President Biden, with his support, said, that's not acceptable. Uh -huh. And we need to get AmeriCorps to a place where we at least have a minimum $15 an hour living allowance mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. AmeriCorps members. So those are the sorts of things that, that we have to look at if we're trying to get to the goals that we're talking about. That's right. And then that was part of the rap, the critical rap about AmeriCorps at one time as well, is that you had to be economically resourced in order to do the service because right. you, you right. didn't make enough money to live. And so that's mm -hmm. when did that change happen? I mean, we want to really help amplify that that yeah. word. Yeah, that so news. I, I am proud since the beginning of the Biden administration, we've raised the living allowance by about 24 percent. Wow. Which which is not easy to do, right? Because no. you get a set amount of funding for, from Congress each year. Right. So when you begin to do things like raising the living allowance, you're cutting the number of members, cutting the number of places that mm -hmm. you can serve. Mm -hmm. But we've raised it about 24%. It was actually last August that the president called on Congress to provide the resources. We're not at 15 yet. We're on a path towards there. Okay. And now we need Congress to actually give us the resources to get it done. I've made a decision so much it is within my authority. Yes. If it means shrinking the footprint of AmeriCorps, so that the AmeriCorps members that we do have can eat and keep a roof over their head and not have to be a trust fund child, mm. then we're going to do that. And I have the support of this administration and I have the support of many of the field leaders to make sure that we're, we're moving in that direction. And by the way, AmeriCorps sets the minimum living allowance in most conditions. So we are actually, we're working with philanthropy. Mm. Um, we are working with state and local leaders to say, you can do more. You can almost go double if you can leverage and, and match these resources. So we're, we're, we're prioritizing those sorts of partnerships. Mm. That's big news, Michael. That's really big news. I mean, when you talk about a power analysis, understanding how people are compensated and what that enables in terms of who can show up to serve. Right. It's big. It is. That's it big. is. We're, we're, we're yeah. trying. We're getting there. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, one person, um, uh, that is a real mentor in my life said, you know, Tulane, you make peace with the fact that because, you are taking on equity, justice, and transformation and systems change, you're never going to arrive. Like, you understand that, right? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I think yes. I was, you know, feeling like something should have been done and, you know, with the period right. at the end. And, uh, you know, he said, you, you know, you're never going to arrive, right? You do mm -hmm. understand that. And I do think it's important for all of us to remember that, but to not use that as an excuse to be complacent or incremental. Um so let's go back to the intergenerational. You gave beautiful examples of elders working in partnership with youth and having that yield 
so much good for all parties, right? And a lot of fuss has been made about the fact that we have workplaces, organizations that feature multiple generations, you know, Mm -hmm, leadership mm -hmm. of a certain age, typically critical mass of the workforce, you know, younger generations. And it is quite a journey to work Mm -hmm. in one institution with multiple generations represented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been all of the sort of uh, stereotyping that is made for each generation. There's sort of a rap about each generation. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, well, first I'll step back. I have a theory. I think part of why sometimes it can feel confusing when we're in workplaces and we have multiple generations represented is that the stories that like you and I were told, Michael, as Mm -hmm. peers, about what one must do to add value, to be successful. The stories we've been told, the core methods that we were immersed in are not just slightly different from generations that came after us, but are actually the polar opposite in some cases. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, Mm -hmm. right? One of the keystones of success that was drilled into me is that you have to pay your dues. Yes. Right? You Mm -hmm. have to pay your dues. And that idea is, I would say, literally repugnant to many young people. (laughs) I think it's actually repugnant. I was at a dinner yesterday with a good friend who is my peer in age and my uh, young cousin who is in her early 30s. And we were talking about this. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked about pay your dues. And she was like, oh, like what? Never. It is actually a repulsive idea. So, you know, you think about working in one place and folks have been trained in opposing methods Mm -hmm. of what success looks like. And I think that's why it can feel so hard because every generation has some difference. Yes. But it's usually more incremental. How do you reconcile that? How do you sort of as someone who was trained in the pay your dues era, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you make space for learn from and build real partnership with folks who have a very different methodology for professional success? Well, I'll tell you, I am older much sooner than I thought I would be. (laughs) I I didn't know I would be forced into some of these generational tensions right now. I know. In my career. But, you know, as the next generation comes in, you are forced to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so I look at it in a couple different ways. One, I just have so much respect for them. Mm-hmm. I, I look at some of my young gay colleagues mm-hmm. who are bringing their full self to work in ways that I I, I, I would have been scared to do. Right, I didn't know right. it was possible. Yes. You know, there was just a period in time when you were gay and people were talking about their partners or what they did over the weekends. You were just quiet, mm-hmm. you know, and you just hoped that the conversation would move on without you. And to see that or the fact that young people come into the workplace with whatever hair they want to wear. You know, I grew up in a, in a household like you better keep your hair short. You better. I actually remember when I was working at the Case Foundation, I decided I was going to grow a beard. Mm-hmm. I asked my boss if it was okay wow, for me to have God. a beard because, oh my God. Oh my because God. that was the world that I grew up like yeah. professional looks a, wow. it looks a certain way. Right. And so I see this generation bringing their full selves to bear. Yeah. And I just applaud, yes. admire, and 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 I and I think that is is beautiful. Yeah, I would say the other thing that I look, having worked in the Obama White House, you know, the the dirty secret of Washington mm-hmm. is it's run by twenty five year olds. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, most of the gatekeepers, chiefs yep. of staff across the federal government, it's people you know coming off of the campaign in their twenties and thirties. That's right. And President Obama 
elevated folks. Yes. He wanted the smartest people. He didn't care if you were 25 or 65. That's right. I sat in Roosevelt room meetings in the White House with President Obama where he was looking for everyone's final opinion. And if you were an intern sitting on the back bench, he wanted your opinion as well. That's right. I think of people like Johannes Abraham, um, who is now an ambassador, who was a colleague of mine. Johannes started driving on the campaign. Mm. By the end of the Obama administration, he was Valerie Jarrett's chief of staff. He then ran the transition and is now an ambassador. And I don't, I'm, I don't even know if Johannes is 40 yet. And there are so many, it, me, I, look, I, I, I joined the administration when I was in my early 30s yeah. and had a chance to grow. And so I try to remember that. That's I right. try to remember, one, that wasn't you so long ago. Right. I also try to remember that the best ideas aren't always by, you know, folks that have less hair or gray hair. <laughs> right. and, and and I'm fighting between the two. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so that that's what I, that does that mean there aren't tensions? No. But yeah, I yeah. I check myself yes, yes. all day, every day. Yes. I, I, I force myself to say, why do you think that? Do you think that because that's what you're already always taught or that was always right? Yeah. And I hope by checking myself yes. that there will be a healthy tension that exists yes. that will make the organizations that I'm a part of stronger. Because I, I feel like if I try to hold on to my belief systems the way that I was taught, we will go extinct. Absolutely. And so, you know, every generation, you know, we, we do this dance. And so I'm, I'm willing to be a part of the dance. Yes. Does it mean it's always easy? Yeah. No, because I do have some hard set beliefs about what certain <laughs> things are. Yeah. But how are we ultimately getting to the, the goals that, that we're trying yeah, to achieve? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think about this idea of paying your dues. Uh, and I have seen time and time again, a person right out of college had the better idea. And we would be missing something. That's right. If we didn't bring that, forget the person right out of college, a person that didn't even have a college That's degree right. had, That's had, right. had the better idea. That's right. And so I, I, I think we, as those of us that are a little older, mm -hmm. have to check ourselves and hope that this next generation that is coming in will also give us some grace and some space and realize that, you know, maybe we learned a thing or two through some experience. That's right. That's right. No, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's it's like we all talk about leadership and growth as these things we all, you know, that many of us aspire to. People want to be leaders and we want to grow. But what it means to lead and what it means to grow is that you're struggling on more occasions yeah. than not, right? It means right. you're trying something you don't really know exactly how to do. It means you're learning that your impact isn't what you intended. It means you have to change. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it is not glamorous <laughs> to right. lead or right. grow. Neither one is yeah. glamorous and both are fraught and, and often difficult. And so if we have the spirit of, kind of like adventure and play with it, then it is good to be in situations where our minds are constantly sharpened. Right. You know, when I used to be a classroom teacher, one of the things I loved about it is like I had no choice but to be on my toes and to be yeah. telling the truth. Yeah. And the minute I wanted to sort of be performative or half do it halfway, the young people would not allow it. And right. so it meant that I was a smarter, better, more authentic human being because I was in that space. And I think right. that that's one of the that that is the true benefit to me of some of those tensions. Right. Mm. There are ways that it's like I have to constantly interrogate what I'm saying to make sure I truly believe it mm -hmm. and that I'm not just repeating what I was trained one says in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But that's a gift for me. 
Right. Right. That enables me to be liberated more quickly than I would be otherwise. So I think it's beautiful and it's also sometimes messy and it is filled with comedic moments because I've had some conversations in the workplace I never thought I'd have. (laughs) (laughs) But I also am learning a lot. I'm learning a lot. And I'm also I think the other piece of it, Michael, is that sometimes I do reject the idea that, you know, the young people will save us. And I know that's not a popular opinion. I know it's Mm. very popular to say the young people will sort of save us from ourselves. But look, we've been trying that since the days of Aristotle. The Mm. truth is that our young people are pushing us in important ways. But it is, I think, inaccurate and irresponsible for us to say the way we will transform systems and evolve this nation is by simply letting young people do what they do and getting out of the way. Right, right. I don't think that that, and I didn't hear you say that, but I do hear that said often. Yeah, and I I think that's a cop out. I do feel that way. It's it's going to take all of us. And if we look at the most recent movements where we're where we've seen some progress, like Mm -hmm. after George Floyd was killed, yes, it took both. Yeah, it it took certain people pushing aggressively, demanding, painting a new imagination, Mm -hmm. and it took some folks that have been on the hill for twenty years (laughs) learning how to like putting that into policy mm-hmm. um, and and folks in the White House. And and yeah, so I I think we only get to true progress when we when we see that connection. I also yeah. just think about my own personal life, Tulane. I, I grew up in the house with my grandmother. I am right. so grateful. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Lackawanna Blues. Oh my um, God, yes. It's one, one of my, my favorites. One of my favorites. <laughs> in, in so many ways, that was my my life. Like my yeah. grandparents' friends were always around. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that was so important to my development and upbringing. Yeah. And I even think about some of my first jobs where I was in my 20s and I had mm-hmm. folks in their 60s that I learned so much from. Yeah. One of my best friends to today mm. is in her 80s. We mm-hmm. met at, I think, my second job out of school and it was her last job. And she actually, it, it's a, a woman by the name of Lois Luthborough mm-hmm. who founded Breakthrough Collaborative, which was mm-hmm. called Summer Bridge. Wow. And the things that she taught me and pushed me to think differently, you know, would have maybe taken me 10, 15 more years to learn on my own. I'm so yes. grateful for, yes. for those those interactions. You, ju- you just can't beat it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I could have kept talking with Michael forever, but... I knew I was not the only one who had questions for him, so I had to give the floor to you, the Say More community. If you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or the platform formerly known as Twitter. And there you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. One is from the brilliant Anna Muyo, who I've had the pleasure of working with for years uh, in her role at Monitor. So her question is, Michael, how are you navigating and safeguarding federal funding in times of increased political polarization, which we've talked about, that can threaten the organization's future and financial viability? Like how that that polarization we talked about has real implications on capital and access based on AmeriCorps structure. How do you navigate that and protect AmeriCorps future? It's a great question. One of the joys of AmeriCorps, though, is we have always had bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. So. The creation of AmeriCorps by President Clinton built off of work that President George H.W. Bush had done to think about ways to provide dollars and support to agencies that were doing service. Mm -hmm. After President Clinton created it and President George W. Bush came in, George W. Bush grew the work that President Clinton started, Mm. created the USA Freedom Corps office, created the President's Volunteer Service Award, 
was doing a lot. Would actually, President George W. Bush, he would meet with extraordinary volunteers at the the base of uh, Air Force One in cities across the country and give them give them awards and recognition. And then President Obama came in and took it to the even next level with the Kennedy Serve America Act, reauthorizing the agency and allowing us to have even more impact. And so we then saw during the Trump administration, that administration did not support this agency, but a bipartisan group of Congress said, the White House may not support it during this term, but we do. Mm. And members from both sides of the aisle who had seen AmeriCorps show up saw that we had 40,000 AmeriCorps members that served for the 10 years after Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana and Mississippi, saw AmeriCorps show up when there were fires and floods and hurricanes, saw us show up to run testing and vaccination lines. Those members on both sides of the aisle know that this isn't just a nice to do, but it's critical and the leverage is great. And we have a 17 to one return on investment for every one federal dollar that's spent, $17 is returned to the economy. And so we've been fortunate to have that level of of bipartisan support. And my goal is to keep telling the stories and and making sure that that we, we continue to have that support. Well, we've got to get these stories out more. I mean, I'm even as I was listening to you, Michael, you reminded me that I was a participant in AmeriCorps enabled service post Katrina in Gulfport, Mississippi. Mm. You know, it's back when I was uh, working with the Youth Build community and Youth Build is another yeah. large national global network that is part of the AmeriCorps portfolio. And a large AmeriCorps grantee. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I was on a Army base in Gulfport, Mississippi with mm. Youth Build alumni doing service, you know, yeah. post Katrina. Yeah. So it's 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 real. And and yet I do feel like when we look at which stories really have the collective attention of the nation, these stories are not in that mix. They're just they're just not in the way that ideally they would be. And so the thing I want to do before we end this conversation is Talk about action, you know, Mm. the Seymour community is an action oriented community and would love to hear, you know, if you could offer a call to action for our listeners based on all that we've talked about today, what would it be? Well, I'll be selfish. Um, You know, I'm the the CEO of AmeriCorps. So I wake (laughs) up all day, every day thinking of how can we strengthen communities and transform lives through the power of service. Mm -hmm. So first I would ask if you are someone that is looking to be fulfilled in a new way, if you are looking to learn about your community, to serve your community, if you are 18 or 80, AmeriCorps has a way that you can serve. And I would encourage you to go to AmeriCorps.gov. I would say to those of you that are out there that are running institutions, think about AmeriCorps as a a partner Mm -hmm. to bring people to help you accelerate impact. Um, We are always looking for, for new partners and we have grants of all levels that could help you Think about your work in a, in a new, different way. And I think you'll enjoy the community that you're part of. I would say to folks that are on the corporate side of things, the philanthropy side of things, mm. we need partners. The government is coming in with a, a major investment, but we can be a test ground for you. We can help you innovate and, and try something new. Mm. You know, lastly, if you don't have a year to give, two years to give, mm. just think about getting more close to your community. Yeah. What's happening down the street? knock on that door, show up and find out how you can be helpful. Mm. And if it's not a nonprofit, start with your neighbor. Yes. Thank you for that call to action, Michael. You know, I think and reflect a lot on what I call an American evolution. Mm. You know, that we as a nation, as we approach our 250th birthday, right? In 2020. I, I've learned that word, semi-sesquicentennial. <sighs> 
bless you. I've seen that word. I've never tried to say that word. <laughs> so my, I may, I may have gotten it wrong, but I it's, think it's, you've it's, got it right. I, that's the nerd in me. I've been, I've, I've practiced pronouncing it. My awe only grows. Thank you so much, Michael. I, you know, I am just know I'm someone who is always just rooting for you. I, you know, I'm so proud to know you and proud of who you are in the world. So thank you. Same here too, William. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Thank you.